Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a really interesting founder. I mean, we're definitely going to be talking a lot about pivots, about having an office in a risky place, about growth rounds. I mean, you name it. I guess uh, I don't want to. I don't want to make our guests wait longer. So I guess without further ado, Lance Hill, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Glad to be here. So born in Massachusetts in a small rural town. So how was life growing up there? Life was, was very, very quiet. Um, you know, we, uh, we grew up, I have an older brother, myself and, and my parents. We were um, uh, African-American, um, small town in Massachusetts. We're the only African-American family in our, our little town um, and grew up um, with not a lot of money, to put it lightly. Um, and so uh, it was definitely a, a quiet experience. It was, it was a safe experience, but it definitely taught me the, the, the value of trying to strive for greater than where you've come from. And any, any lessons there, uh, Lance? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm from Spain, so I guess, uh, you know, I, uh, coming here to the U.S., you know, like, was quite of a, quite of a challenge. You know, I, I don't know, maybe, you know, like you, uh, you mentioned to me that you and your brother were the only ones there, so there was not a lot of diversity. So I, I'm wondering if there was any lessons or anything that was there for you to, to really capture. You know, I think the thing that I learned um, growing up was just accountability for myself. Um, you know, it, it it was nice in a way in that it was, a, you know, a very small kind of rural upbringing. Um, and so you, you really did know everyone. But on the flip side, um, it was certainly a bit of an isolating feeling uh, and that there were not people like you around. Um, and so, you know, I think what I learned from a young age is self-reliance, um, from that experience. And also again, really growing up, uh, pretty poor, uh, pretty much on welfare for, for the, the first part of, of my life. Um, you know, the value of, of rolling up your sleeves and getting things done yourself that no one's going to come help you. Um, that was the kind of the big thing that I learned. And, and I, and I took that into the rest of my life. Do you think that that, uh, to a certain degree, desensitized your, you being with uncertainty, which is a big deal in entrepreneurship? Um, I think what it maybe gave me in a way was a false sense of confidence uh, in that, you know, I feel like I can do anything if I put my mind to it and, and I kind of have to because no one else is going to help me do it. 
Um, and so that's, I think that's the, the big lesson that I, I kind of took away from my upbringing. And, and in terms of um, your love for computers, I mean, how, how did you come across, you know, this love and, and started really developing, you know, the skill set around it? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a great question. So actually, you know, um, as I got older, my mother started going to night school um, and got a degree, um, um, basically became a database administrator. But through that, she would take me, um, you know, to the computer lab. And I would kind of sit in the back of the computer lab while she was at school. Um, and I really got, you know, kind of sensitized to computers then. Um, and ultimately uh, got myself, a, you know, a home computer, uh, you know, an, an old one, was able to start uh, programming. I just love the feeling of being able to build things on my own, um, kind of write them, figure them out. This was, you know, this was in the, in the, the 80s. So computers were, were quite different. Um, and uh, that's really what got me, got me going. And the thing I, I just really loved about the whole technology space and, and still do to this day is it fits a lot with what I said earlier, which is it's, it's all about who you are, like what you know, what you can do. It's not necessarily about, you know, what letters come after your name from a degree point of view or where your pedigree is. I think technology generally is a really great industry for meritocracy. Um, and that, that appealed to me as well. That I, that I could basically create anything I wanted to with a computer if I was just smart enough to figure out how. So then, how do you end up in Ohio? Yeah, so I went to um, I went to school in Ohio for computer engineering. Um, um, at the time, I was looking uh, my the rest of my family, um, you know, kind of all went to school in 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 in, in Massachusetts. My my older brother went went uh, to a state state school in Massachusetts. Uh, ultimately. Um, and I was going to uh, do that as well, but I got a, um, a scholarship to, uh, to a university in Toledo, Ohio, um, to uh, study computer engineering. So I, I went to do that and, and moved out here. Um, and this was in the early 90s. So this was a, a time, you know, when the, the dot-com boom hadn't really hit yet. Um, but it was, still a, it was still a big kind of ramp happening with, with technology. And so um, at the time, the two big cool tech companies were IBM and Microsoft, kind of, you know, version one of Microsoft, right? You know, the, the MS-DOS uh, sort of, you know, part of Microsoft and in, in, in early versions of Windows. Um, and so while at school, um, I got recruited to join IBM out of Detroit. Um, and I did that. And so I actually never finished my college degree. Um, I, I left school, uh, you know, it's kind of cool to hear about that now with some of the, you know, the great tech founders, you know, they'll leave school to start their, their companies or whatever. Um, I kind of did it in a, in a weird opposite way. I left school to go join a big company um, and, uh, and joined IBM. This was an IBM was, was really transforming itself into a services organization from a, a legacy, you know, hardware sort of company. And they were really, really trying to, to uh, get smart talent wherever they could. Um, and so I joined IBM in their global services division, which was which was nascent at the time out of Detroit. I think when I joined, there were maybe 40 people um, in, in kind of my whole region that did services. And when I left, five years later, there were 800, just to kind of give you a sense of, of, of the scale of that. Um, and that got me exposure to large companies. What I was doing at IBM was, you know, Fortune 500 consulting. Um, where I would go into uh, organizations and 
um, you know, this was the early days of the internet. So I was designing internet environments for, for companies, designing firewalls and security systems, um, building some of the first online banking networks, you know, things like that. Um, and I remember, you know, at that time in my career, it was interesting, you know, um, first I was very young and I kind of have a baby face. Uh, and so I remember I would, I would always try to wear like a, like a thick goatee or a beard. So I would look older because, you know, I was a consultant being charged, you know, being billing at hundreds of dollars an hour going into people who were like older than my parents and trying to tell them what they should do. Uh, so I remember I always I always thought I needed to try to look as old as I could. Now, of course, I wish I could look younger than 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 I could. But I was traveling five days a week, uh, six days a week, most weeks, um, traveling all around to different organizations. I actually got to the point where I considered not even having a house or an apartment rather, just having like a PO box for my mail on the weekends, because I would, you know, fly, fly back from wherever I was late Friday night, early Saturday morning, Saturday morning, drop off my dry cleaning, uh, from the week before, pick it up, you know, have one night and then on Sunday be getting ready to travel out again. Um, and so I, so for about four and a half, five years, I was really a road warrior. And I view that really more as my my college, if if that makes sense. In that I was able to see a lot of different organizations in different industries, healthcare, fintech, or you know, finance, um, government agency, things like that, and really see how technology could impact their businesses and what they were doing, and how technology even impacted management style and management function as well from a process point of view. Um, and the cool thing about that job. Uh, is that I got to kind of reinvent myself, you know, every few months when we'd do the next, we'd go to the next contract or implement the next big system. Um, you could kind of start over, take your lessons learned, uh, take the things that didn't work and leave them behind and then go forward. And, and that's something I've, I've certainly taken into my entrepreneurial life um, where things haven't always gone like I hoped they would, but being able to kind of reset yourself and, and drive forward with what you've learned. Is there anything there, Lance, you know, perhaps on, on while you were working with all these different companies, patterns that you were able to see from the companies that executed well from the companies that didn't? Yes. You know, I think um, companies that did a poor job at that time were companies that got enamored with the technology and lost sight of why they were trying to do it. Uh, there was certainly this, this idea that you know, companies are trying to kind of quote unquote modernize and implement kind of the next cool technology or the next cool fad. Um, and those tech, those companies ended up invariably, you know, spending and wasting a lot of money and not really usually making a lot of change. Um, and so I, I really, I think what I learned there a little bit is, is kind of the idea of waste. I remember, I remember one time at that part, point of my career, sitting in a um one of our clients at the time was a school district and this was during the um al gore no child left behind act i think it was um, where basically schools could apply to the government for uh a thousand dollars or a couple of thousand dollars per student if they lived in an impoverished neighborhood to purchase technology to connect them to the internet to try to you know lower the internet divide but the issue was at the time that, so I was working, you know, we were, IBM was, was consulting for a large school district um, and they were going to apply for these funds. 
and they certainly felt political pressure to apply for all the funds, but they were only allowed to use the funds for the actual infrastructure network and hardware. And so I remember sitting in a room at, at that point in kind of my formative years with folks around the table saying, we, we have to figure out how to spend $70 million or whatever it was of internet technology hardware, because we have to apply for all of it. Because if we don't apply for all of it, we'll be on the front page saying the school didn't get all the money that was available to them, but yet they couldn't actually spend the money on curriculum or anything useful. And so we were, we were, you know, trying to brainstorm, but they were looking at putting in, you know, fortune 500 class, you know, servers and network infrastructure that ultimately would not be used very well. And they were doing it more because they were doing it from a technology first point of view than thinking about it from what the actual impact would be. Um, and so, you know, that's an example of, of what of what not to do. I saw similar things in, in kind of for-profit environments as well, where, you know, the, the budget and kind of a high-level plan drove a technology implementation or a technology thought process versus really thinking about the business that we're trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish. And so what I, you know, what I really fell in love with in that part of my career was on the successful side and seeing how technology can really transform businesses when it's aligned properly, when the goals are set up correctly. Um, and that's really, really fun. And it's, it's, it's neat. The turnaround time on it is, is very fast, relatively speaking, to a lot of other, other industries. And so I, I really enjoyed that part is, is when there was alignment coming in, re-engineering processes, putting technology underneath that and seeing businesses function tremendously better on the way out. Got it. And obviously after after this experience, I mean, really web methods was the segue into starting your business. I think that with web methods also, you were able to really see the, perhaps the full cycle of a company because you were there when the acquisition happened. So so tell us about this experience and then also how did you come across the idea of Within3 and, and how did you go about bringing it to life? Yeah, so, you know, a, a couple of stops after after IBM um, was Web Methods and, and it was kind of my progression both from large company to smaller. So IBM had, you know, 100,000 plus employees when I joined. Web Methods had about 2,000. Um, you know, in the middle of there, I, I worked with a, with a top 10 bank that had about 35,000 employees and, and, and ran a, a big part of the IT organization there. Um, and so my career path was kind of tra always trajecting towards smaller and smaller companies um, because I like the turnaround time so much better um, and, 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 and the impact. And when I joined Web Methods, it was really when at that point it had become very clear to me that continuing that theme of, of technology making an impact on business what I really want to be involved in is the business side of technology. I want to be running a software business or a technology business. Um, and Web Methods was a great place for me to really learn that part of it. Um, learn, you know, so publicly traded company, about $200 million in revenue at the time. Um, and uh, a global organization with a global footprint. Um, a really, really great experience for me learning kind of the, the business of software more than just kind of where I started, which was just the, the technology side of it. And those, those lessons that I learned there, being involved in a global software organization all the way through, um, uh, ultimately, uh, we sold the business to Software AG, um, I took with me when starting Within3. So tell us about the early days of Within3, because obviously the, the business that you guys started is not the business that we know today. No, it's not. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So. Uh, 
it's it's really funny when you think about um, uh, starting a company. I think from from literally from scratch uh, and, and and kind of the process and that that you go through. You know, I think at the time, like a lot of entrepreneurs, um, you know, you read you, you read things and you think, oh, I'm going to start a company and. Four years from now, I'll be on the you know the cover of Wired magazine, smoking a cigar, celebrating my my vast success. Um, and I think I had a little bit of that in my head that it was that easy. Um, but what we were doing at the time was, you know, uh, myself and a few others were were thinking about how we can improve communication in healthcare, um, and thinking about it from a technology focused point of view. And at the time, um, um, you know. When I was at Web Methods and, and, and kind of finishing that, that part of my journey, um, social media technology was really coming into its own. So this is in the 2006-7 sort of time frame. Um, and at the time, I remember that uh, the, the largest social media, in the, media uh, company in the world at that time was MySpace, which was number one. Uh, Facebook was coming on strong. They were, they were number two and, and, and coming. And I remember like LinkedIn was this kind of business social media thing that was kind of interesting, but no one quite knew what to make of it at that time. Um, and the prevailing wisdom at the time was that um, either Facebook or MySpace would win the social media war for consumer for consumer social media. And obviously Facebook eventually won out. But the thought process was that what would happen next would be there'd be a Facebook for lawyers and a Facebook for accountants and a Facebook for doctors. So that's so different constituencies, professional constituencies. There'd be a, a kind of a predominant social network for each of those. And there was a lot of money being poured in, into that uh, kind of idea. And so, uh, you know, what, what we were looking at at the time thinking about was, um, can we use social media sorts of technology to improve communication in healthcare? Can we make it so that if a doctor needs to refer a patient to a specialist, that they can find that specialist easier, faster, better? Um, can, can we make it so that if, if, if there's a, a difficult case that doctors can connect with each other and talk about that case you know, better, faster? Can we make it so that they can do it between institutions? Because at the time, and it still exists today, um, you might have two doctors in the same city but if they work for two different health systems, they may have very, very limited interaction. Um, and ultimately, that's bad for, for patients. And so we were thinking about creating, uh, in essence, a social network for doctors it was the original idea of Within3. Um, and when we started that, uh, we did it, again, purely bootstrap, purely, purely angel-backed. Um, there are four or five other companies that were in the same um, in the same time horizon that we're also approaching that problem from different points. All of those, all of those companies are tombstones. Now they're all gone. Um, and, uh, but the idea was that whoever got to quote unquote critical mass first would win. Um, and so we, we began a journey trying to build that, trying to take social media technology and apply it to healthcare and, and more specifically try to build a physician network in, you know, in the early, you know, in the late two thousands. Um, and that business, ultimately, that business model ultimately was not successful. We, we saw that um, uh, kind of coming. We, we, we founded Within3 Inc. right at the end of 2008. Um, and really, by the time you know, we, we, we worked at it, we built the platform, we started getting, uh, getting users and, and so forth. But by the time we started getting to 2011, 12, it was pretty clear that um, the business model wasn't going to work. 
And so we had to make, make a pivot. It was one of those um, sort of life and death experiences uh, where um, to continue going like we were, we were going to go out of business. We had to make a switch um, and we had to uh, approach the market differently. So how, so what ended up being the business model that uh, we know of within three today? Yeah. So, so, you know, at the end of, of 2012, we, we recapped uh, the business. We, we sent, you know, uh, we communicated all of our shareholders, which were, which were angels and said, we need, we need to do something, something different. Uh, they uh, retained their trust in me for the most part. I think we had over 80% participation in the, in the recap. Um, and what we did instead is we said, you know, the, the, the initial idea is correct in that healthcare is still, uh, there's still such walls to communication. And even when you look at where we are today with, with you know, the COVID vaccine and everything else, there's, there's so many inherent walls to communication. And so what we did, though, is we said, you know, part of the, part of the issue was if you are trying to build a, a network on your own, you need users, you need content, and you need money. And those are three things that were difficult for us to, to, to get being capitalized the way that we were. But if we could, if we could actually approach it on a B two B SaaS basis, so if we could go to organizations that have constituents um, and help them solve their communication problems, we could maybe make more of a difference. And so we we rebuilt, uh, kind of relaunched within three in 2013 as a B two B SaaS company that was focused on working in the life sciences market. So we found that um, you know over that that previous four years that one of the really large places where, where communication problems really hurt everything, time, money, costs, and, and ultimately lives is in drug development. And that if we could take what we had learned generally and apply it specifically the communication challenges in drug development, we could help life science companies bring you know, uh, products and therapies uh, through research and in, into the marketplace faster. And so we, we, pivoted away from kind of the, the, the network-based approach and instead said, we're going to call on companies individually and show them how we think our technology can help them you know, you know, do what I, I just said. Um, and we started really uh, rebuilding our, our products for that purpose and then kind of one client at a time um, working through and convincing them that there's a better way to communicate with physicians when you're developing a drug than you know, eight hour long meetings at a hotel in Dallas, as an example. Absolutely. So then in this case, I mean, obviously a company like this requires some cash, some capital. So, so how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah. So when we did the recaps, we had raised some money before the recap that was basically all gone. Um, and we raised, we raised two and a half million dollars, um, in at the end of, uh, 2012 from our, you know, from our existing angel backers and then, and then some other angels as well that kind of came in. Um, and that's it. Um, and, um, you know, we took that and then ran a business. Well, you know, what was interesting is because we were, we had no capital, I kind of call it our, our dry farming stage. Um, we had to be extraordinarily cash efficient. So we basically built the business out of, out of cash flow. Um, every single headcount that we, that we decided to hire and not hire was to some degree an existential decision uh, because we didn't have any sort of buffer to be wrong. Um, and so we, um, you know, very methodically uh, built a profitable and cash flow positive business um, over, over those, those first years and, and kept everything, um, you know, we didn't have the luxury of doing a big growth round and then, and then really spending ahead 
of where our business was aiming at a future target, we had to get a very solid fundamental business built in, in those first few years when we weren't even at scale yet in order to kind of survive uh, in the way that we were. And so that, that was really the first challenge was, was that. Um, and ultimately, obviously, we, we succeeded. So the growth round, the last growth round that you guys did, I mean, it was literally 90 days. So, so can you tell us about this? Yeah, so that was over the summer. So, you know, so fast forward from, I guess, you know, 2013, you know, really starting the company and focusing on how we can help life science companies, you know, communicate virtually. Um, we, you know, we, we figured it out from 2013 to 2017, we were gaining initial clients. We, we were targeting the largest of the large pharmaceutical companies in the world, as an example. Um, and bringing them on board and, and continuing to, to serve them as well as we could and, and build our solution. Um, and then by, by 2017 or so, we really had, had it figured out uh, from a product and a business model point of view. Um, and in 2017 is when we started scaling uh, organically. Um, our, our actual growth rate began to double year over year from 2017 forward, where before that we were growing modestly but more, you know, much more an incremental basis. Um, and so by, you know, from 2017 forward, our product set had expanded. We were able to help our clients do all sorts of virtual work. Um, we were growing. We, we hired our, our European arm and, and uh, our European team in 2019. Um, and we're growing really, really broadly. And then going into this year, um, in Q1, we were already growing at triple digits. Um, and then COVID happened. Uh, and, and I think for a lot of companies, right, there's this and then COVID happened sort of phrase. And, and then what comes after that is either uh, really disastrous for the business or, or not. You know, for us, we were a company who had spent the last, you know, eight years building a business around virtual work and how to do work virtually. Um, and when COVID happened, our rate of growth was already extraordinarily high, but um, kind of like what happened to Zoom um, in that towards mid to the end of March, um, you know, leads for within three spiked in our industry because folks went from pursuing alternative ways of communicating as the right thing to do to pursuing it as a must do because all everything live had been kind of canceled. Um, and so we looked at a world that said, wow, um, COVID has accelerated our marketplace forward for virtual work and virtual engagement a number of years. Um, and we were already high growth, high scale. And so we said, you know, what we really need to do at this point is raise a growth round. Um, the, the demands on the company and the marketplace were, were high. We, we, we didn't want to be in a position anymore. Where we were trying to fund everything out of cash flow. We wanted to really step on the gas with, with product innovation um, we wanted to be able to expand globally. And so we, we began, you know, we began a growth round. So like we spent Q2, um, for us was a bit different. So our, um, demand for utilization of within three just spiked again, very similar, like what you read about with zoom. And so we spent Q2, we had already hired, uh, aggressively in Q1 because we were already growing so quickly. We kind of expanded our hiring in Q2, um, and then entered, entered a, a growth round and, and, you know, when we did that, one of the things that was really important to me is that we not screw up the business because I wasn't, 
you know, we were already kind of a profitable cash flow positive business. And so I wasn't interested, you know, you never know if, when you start around what you're going to get and if you're going to end up being able to accomplish what you hope. Um, and so what I didn't want to do is start the process for a growth round um, and then damage the business because, you know, my eye is off the ball and, and, you know, diligence is hard and you spend so much time going through it that we end up coming out of it, deciding not to do a round, but really having damaged or, or delayed the business in, in the meantime. So we set a goal that if we were going to do, we would go out and explore the market and see what the appetite was because we had been heads down for so long. I don't think we knew really what, uh, what, what the kind of market value of within three would be. Um, and, but if we were going to do it, the choice was to get it all done before Q4, because for us, you know, we're, we're a little bit of a seasonal business and Q4 is a really important quarter for us. So that meant that we had to get the entire process done. I think we started in, in May kind of, you know, formally, um, began a formal process right at the end of May and, um, um, started talking with very leading SaaS private equity companies, ended up closing around within 90 days in the middle of COVID, uh, which was, uh, which is obviously still, still going on, uh, over this past summer. Um, and so it was a very, very intense, um, you know, all day, all night, uh, seven day a week sort of experience uh, for, for most folks. And within three, really since about March 15th, when travel restrictions started, um, you know, all the way to current day. So in this in this sense, so how, how much how much did you guys end up raising, Lance? Right, we raised um, over one hundred million dollars of growth capital. Um, we we. Um, ended up partnering with with insight partners um who we liked um uh, very much we talked to a number of firms uh through that process um and you know one of the things for us that was really really important is because we are a founder started kind of founder led business if you will um the, most of the folks on our on our you know in our company up until maybe early this year had been with the company for a while um, had taken it from, you know, very, very small to, to kind of what it was. Um, and the next, the next size of scale for us was, was, was pretty extreme. And we wanted to make sure that we had access to a firm that not only obviously had uh, deep pockets and capital and a tremendous track record in, in growing scale-up companies successfully, but we also wanted a firm that had... Um, and some operational expertise on staff that could talk to us about scaling our go-to-market and scaling, um, you know, scaling our client success team and scaling our product groups um, and implementing systems uh, underneath those and dealing in a global environment like like we deal with in our business um, versus a firm that maybe had capital and had a rolodex of people you could talk to but didn't necessarily have direct access to that, that operational support. Um, we really needed that because we, you know, we, we started this year, um, you know, we our our, our headcount over the course of this year is tripling. Um, and we're, we'll continue to have high growth of headcount going forward. And so we really needed to, at, at the point of absolute highest volume for the company, already start implementing, you know, processes to scale for, for Q1 of the coming year. So we thought Insight brought a lot of capability there for us, um, and and they were able to do the deal quickly, which again was really important to me. I did not want to be in a position where, you know, it's October, it's November, 
and we're still haggling over, you know, term sheets or diligence items or what have you, and the deal's dragging on and on and on, and my eye is not on the business. So, um, you know, they were able to move really, really quickly with us, which, which was tremendous. I mean, 90 days is like no time. So, I mean, that's a, that's really fantastic lunch. So one thing that I wanted to ask you is to get a sense, you know, especially for the folks that are probably listening to us now, to get a sense of the size of within three, is there anything that you can share in terms of maybe numbers, employees or anything? Yeah, so we are, um, we're about 140 employees uh, currently. Um, and again, that's up. We, we started the year just over, I think at 45 employees. Um, and we're still, we're still adding pretty much in every single department. So, uh, from a headcount wise, that's where we were. Um, at this point we have staff in the U S Latin America, Europe, Asia. Um, and, um, you know, we are deployed globally, which is, which brings its own interesting set of challenges. It's, it's been really fun and interesting. Um, integrating different, you know, different cultures and different places of the world into the, into the company and doing all of that during COVID, uh, when you can't go see people and meet people, you know, it's interesting as, as a, as a founder led company, when you're smaller, you tend to know everyone, you either interviewed them yourself or you've met them, uh, very quickly along the way. And we went from that feeling, at least I did from feeling like I could look at everyone on, on a company call and know them all, you know, by name and face to, we're hiring people every single week that you've never met. Um, and that's, that's an interesting feeling uh, as well. It's been, been different. I think hiring in the COVID era um, where you're, you're literally hiring someone off of a Zoom screen with very limited kind of physical interaction with them um, has just been challenging. I know it's been for a lot, a lot of companies. I mean, luckily for us, we're just natively remote anyway. Um, and we didn't have a lot of uh, process change or that sort of thing to do when, when COVID kind of affected the world the way it did with travel restrictions. Um, but it still is, is a little bit surreal um, just seeing that the head kind of the company grow the way it is at the speed it is. And obviously here we're, we're talking about you being at it since 2008 with, uh, within three. So, I mean, it's been a, a wild ride to say the least, uh, Lance. And, you know, one of the questions that I ask the folks that come on the show is, you know, if, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, I mean, mm-hmm. imagine you get into this time machine and you, ba- you go back to 2008, that moment when you were thinking about starting your own thing and, and going at it. Uh, what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why, given what you know now, Lance? Um, the first thing that comes to mind is pay attention. Uh, and what I mean by that, I think again, is I think when you're starting a business, you're so, it, it requires such faith that you're going to be successful to take the risk to start a business anyway, especially if you're doing it with your own money and those of your family and friends, um, that it can, I think, blind you to the potential flaws in what you're doing or make you not notice where, where you're actually wrong. So, you know, I, I know there's like a school of thought, um, you know, that says, hey, I have a vision and my vision is right. And I'm going to pursue my vision no matter what. And, and the world, you know, will, will get where I am because I know I'm right. I don't subscribe to that, I think. I think it's you have a vision and then the market kind of smacks you in the face and tells you if your vision is right or wrong or if your vision needs to be modified or implemented differently. And I think in the early days, 
I think, um, you know, I was so uh, overconfident that um, what we were doing was so great and innovative and, and I had been, you know, decently successful in my career that um, it was just destiny almost that, that we were going to become an amazing company. Um, and it wasn't, I think, until things started to really go wrong, it was like a, a light bulb went off. And, and so my advice to myself would be going back would be, would be just that, uh, believe you're going to be successful, but be very, very paranoid that you're missing something, uh, and cover and cover what that is. It's, it's, especially when you're a small company, it's easy to have fatal mistakes. Um, you know, we had, we had a, in our early days, one company that, um, purchased a lot from us one year and we thought this is it we're going to replicate what that company did and we're, we're we've arrived and it turned out that was kind of a false positive um and so we we kind of drunk our own kool-aid with 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 not a good amount of real market data and and built the company in the wrong direction ultimately had to reset well well very very profound lunch so i guess for the folks that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi yeah, so you can um, uh, uh, get me via email, lhillatwithin3.com or, or via our website, www.within3.com. Uh, you, can, you can contact us there. Amazing. Well, Lance, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.